One of the great preachers of the 20th century, Donald Gray Barnhouse, told a story from his family that illustrates a problem that I'm going to mention this morning. His children used to amuse themselves with their push-button radio by listening to one program and then in the middle of a sentence pushing the button and then it would jump into another program partway through. Now, I know this probably makes no sense to you if you're under the age of 40, a push-button radio, but just work with me here. Um, for example, they might be listening to a political speech and hear the words, and I promise, and they push a button and the sentence continues, strike three, you're out. Well, Barnhouse told of one incident, and this was true, this has honestly happened, that when they were listening to the broadcast of the marriage of Queen Elizabeth of England to Philip, and the minister said, do you, Philip, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And the button was pushed right at that point. The radio continued with the account of a prize fight. Shake hands, go to your corners, come out fighting at the bell. <laughs> now, here's the problem that we run into. And it's a pretty common situation when you're looking at biblical passages. We make our observations from the text, what it says. But then we jump right to application and we skip the all-important step of interpretation. What did the author mean in the context in which he wrote? Uh, how would the, those first recipients understand what was written to them in the first century? Because you see, the danger is, as someone has said, a text without a context is a pretext. Or we might put it another way, a text without a context becomes a proof text. I can make it say anything I want. And the passage we're going to consider today lends itself to such a practice. I think you'll see what I mean when we read it. Uh, but, but let's begin by looking at the passage as a whole, and then we'll go back through it again and try to discern what Paul is saying to these believers in the city of Corinth in that first century. So if you would turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, this is where we are in our study of 2 Corinthians. If you grab a Bible in front of you in the seat back, page 1228, 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. And follow along as I start reading in verse 3. Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything." We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Did you notice where we often jump right to application? Being unequally yoked with unbelievers? You know, again, I think we assume that Paul's talking about marriage, talking about a business relationship, you know, partnership. Uh, maybe he's talking about uh, how we relate to other churches and organizations that we might be invited to join, to participate in some uh, effort, and, and maybe they're, you know, not of the same doctrine as we are. But really, is that the point that Paul is trying to make? Now, I titled this message, The Best Defense is a Good Offense. Have you heard that expression? Sure, of course you have. It might originate as far back as 500 B.C. with Sun Tzu. Uh, the first English rendering that we have of it is George Washington in 1799 when he said offensive operations, oftentimes, is the surest, if not the only, in some cases, means of defense. Today, it seems to be mostly applied to sports, isn't it? And particularly football. But I also want to suggest that it illustrates the approach that Paul takes here in regard to those in the Corinthian church who stood in opposition to him. Often in this letter, we find himself defending himself against the accusations that were made against him. They said that he was fickle, that he would say he was going to do one thing, but then would do another. Uh, they said he didn't come with letters of recommendation from other churches, therefore he must not be a true apostle. Uh, he couldn't be a true apostle because he didn't charge for his ministry like they did. Some were concerned that the offering that he was going to pick up for the Jerusalem saints, he would use to feather his own nest. Uh, others pointed out that he was of little physical stature when he was with them. Oh, he was great with the pen, but when he was with them, he wasn't much to see. Certainly not the robustness that you would expect from a true apostle. We, we, we shouldn't be surprised that this is the way that they are. Uh, we note from the first letter that these folks are all caught up in experiences of, of ecstasy, uh, a flashy expression of spiritual gifts, particularly the sign gifts. They were the original health, wealth, gospel proponents. They, they, they brought a legalistic gospel into the church and said, you've got to do all these things now in order to really be in with God. When you look across the whole broad scope of Paul's ministry, you see that his relationship with people and, and, and the tone of his ministry runs the whole gamut. For example, he would write to the Thessalonians and he would say, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Later in the same chapter, he says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. But then he would turn around and he would write to those who were infiltrating the churches in the region of Galatia with, with a gospel that, was, that was, wasn't the one that he had proclaimed. And he writes these scathing words, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we've preached to you, let him be accursed. 
As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Whoa, those are strong words. But that seems to be the tone that Paul has picked up now to talk about those in Corinth that are opposing him, that are dividing the church over Paul's ministry and his apostolic authority. So Paul goes on to defend himself by explaining how and at what cost he's conducted his life and apostolic work. See, to him, his sufferings did not disqualify him from apostleship as the critics claimed. Instead, really, they authenticated his apostleship. And so he repeatedly talks about how his sufferings were on their behalf, that it was the church that benefited from his sufferings. And throughout this letter, Paul puts forth a view of suffering that was at odds with those of the false teachers in Corinth. And he declares that it is through weakness that God's power is projected. His refrain is, when I am weak, he is strong. We'll pick it up over and over again in this letter. Scott Haifman says about Paul's sufferings, left to itself, suffering is not a noble and purifying virtue. Rather, what distinguishes the suffering of the righteous from the suffering rampant in the world is the transforming power of God's sustaining presence in their lives. Those whom God calls to suffer on behalf of others as an extension of Christ's love are not called to masochism, but to a mission. This is a great perspective for all of us who are God's children and who might be going through difficult times or called to go through difficult times in our lives. There is a redemptive purpose to suffering that we saw in the first chapter of this letter. But Paul goes on to catalog all of his experiences along the way in his ministry. And he begins by putting them all under, at least most, most the Greek scholars that look at the text believe that they're all under the category or the umbrella of what he says is great endurance. Through all of his sufferings, all of his difficult circumstances, Paul says that he endured, he persevered all through the enabling power of the Spirit. And so he starts with a list of negatives. Kent Hughes suggests that they line up this way. First, there are general troubles, afflictions, hardships, calamities. Jesus himself told his disciples that this is what they could expect in the world. When they're gathered together in the upper room, the night in which he was going to be betrayed, he said this to them, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. So there are general troubles. But then there are also troubles from others, and he lists beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Look what Paul writes later in this same letter. He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Um, I mean, this is a guy that wherever he went, he caused a riot. Then there are self-inflicted troubles. I like that nomenclature there. Labor, sleepless nights, hunger. In other words, Paul made some lifestyle choices in order to serve that brought upon these kinds of things. His commitment to others, he often went with little sleep, little food. He worked to support himself so that he wouldn't be a burden upon the church. But there are also some positive things that he wanted them to see, the way that he conducted his ministry. These are inner resources that motivated and empowered his ministry. So in the text, he lists purity, knowledge, 
patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. These, these are all inner graces of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul maintained a clear conscience in his dealings with those that opposed him. And he characterizes his work on behalf of these believers with these descriptions, by truthful speech. Paul didn't deceive people the way the false teachers did. He says that he conducted his ministry by the power of God. He said he did it with weapons of righteousness. Paul recognized that conflict ultimately involves the spiritual realm. And so he brings that in, that they would understand that. He further describes his experiences. I want you to look again at, at, at verse 8. He says, in the middle of it, we're treated as imposters, and yet we're true. As unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Think about Paul's situation. Friends turned, failed him. Converts that he had in the faith turned against him. His work is threatened by wicked people, and yet, in spite of all that, he endured. He persevered. He stayed the course. Philip Hughes writes, but no sorrow, disappointment, however severe, could ever interrupt, let alone extinguish the joy of his salvation with his vision of unclouded glory to come for this joy was founded upon the sovereign supremacy of God who overrules all things and causes them to work together for good to those he's called. And now Paul wraps up this whole section with a very personal appeal to them. Look again at verse 11. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts to us also. Paul wanted the Corinthians to respond in kind to his entreaties. Now, we have to be clear about this, folks. Paul isn't trying to stroke his ego. He isn't playing the hurt feelings card here, hoping that the Corinthians are somehow going to build up his self-esteem. I mean, what is he really trying to do? He's trying to protect them from God's judgment. What is at stake here is the gospel. It isn't Paul's reputation or his emotional well-being. But Paul's call is to the truthfulness of the gospel that he preached and that he lived. And so he's drawing this parallel between Paul's call for the Corinthians to be reconciled to God in chapter 5 with a call for them to be reconciled to him in chapter 6. Okay, how do we step back from that and get an application from those verses to the life of the church today? Well, I think one of them would be in the relationship of God's people with leaders that God has placed over them. Now, there's no apostolic authority today. I haven't heard anybody call me Apostle Mark, and if you do, you're wrong. Uh, you know, they passed from the scene in the first century. Um, but in a similar way, God does give gifted people to the church. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers, or shepherd teachers, some translate it, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about this relationship with people and their spiritual shepherds. And he says, obey your leaders and submit to them 
for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You may be like me, but I read and I hear of terrible situations within churches, of conflict between pastors and congregations, of anger and of rancor and of disputes within leadership boards and within churches. And I read those and I think, oh my goodness. Now, I've been part of the Knollwood family, the church family here for 17 years now. You have given me no reasons for anything but gratitude. Gratitude to God for the privilege of serving you. Uh, Gratitude for the gracious way that you've dealt with me. Uh, It's almost scary how we've worked together in a spirit of unity and grace for all these years. I have no complaints. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. We are so unusual, I think out there in the world of churches. May God continue to pour his grace upon us that a spirit of peace and unity continues. doesn't mean we never disagree. Oh my goodness, no, not at all. We see things differently. But together, we work hard, as Paul says, to preserve the unity of the church in the bond of love. Now here's where we come to the passage I mentioned at the beginning. The most important thing for us to do is to set these verses in their greater context. Because we need to see verses 14 to 18 in the context of Paul's arguing for the legitimacy of his ministry. And here he gives explicit instructions of what is necessary for those in the Corinthian church to do as they face those who oppose Paul. It's pretty strong stuff when we understand what Paul is saying here. Look at the statements. Look at the contrast that Paul sets out. And then, and then we'll work to identify who these unbelievers are. But these descriptive words stand in opposition to each other. They oppose each other. So he begins with righteousness and lawlessness. Haifman says that righteousness here has to do with both one's relationship with God in Christ and its outworking in a, light of, uh, in a life of light. Um, Light, he says, is a moral designation that refers to the new life of obedience to God, engendered by trusting in Christ and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does righteousness have with lawlessness? He goes on to say, what does light have to do with darkness? Again, it's a description of the spiritual realm, the world in which we live. People are either in the light or they're in the dark. And then Christ and Belial. Now, Belial is a reference to the personification of Satan, the evil one. It's it's an extension of a Hebrew equivalent meaning worthlessness or treacherous. Of course, the answer he expects through all of these is a negative answer. There is no commonality there. Or what about believer and unbeliever? He says, no, this doesn't work. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Then he says the temple of God versus idols. The word Paul chooses to use here in the Greek New Testament speaks of the inner sanctum of God's presence, the most holy place. Think of the Old Testament tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. Think of Solomon's temple again, the place of God's dwelling. Paul, in his earlier letter, states this amazing uh, truth. Do you not know that you you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. There is both a personal and a corporate aspect of this. 
Each individual believer, Paul says, is the dwelling place of God's Spirit. What an amazing thought. I don't know about you, but don't you shake, I certainly shake my head and think, I'm a temple of God? I mean, we know the crud that's in our life, but what an amazing thing that God's Holy Spirit comes and takes up his dwelling place every time a person trusts in Christ. But likewise, the church corporately is God's temple because of its makeup of God's children. The Apostle Peter speaks collectively of believers as being built into a spiritual house. It's a dwelling place for God. So who are these non-believers, these unbelievers that Paul mentions in verse 14? People with whom believers are told not to associate with. Okay, here's where we drill down into interpretation. First, who are they not? Paul isn't referring to the relationship that Christians have with unbelievers out there in the world. That would contradict what he wrote before. Look what this is from 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Okay? It's impossible that that would be the case. Here's what I think it is. Paul's concern is with the enemy within. It was people within the church who were opposing him. And if the believers in Corinth were to open their hearts to Paul, they must separate from those in the church who stood against Paul. The context of, Paul, of Paul's focus is a warning to Corinthian believers against allying themselves with those who were his opponents within the church. They, they may have have been nominal Christians, probably weren't Christians. But he calls out those that are rebelling against him in his apostolic ministry. It's interesting that he identifies them with idols and with idolatry. Haifman writes here, which is good, Paul's concern here is that the faithful in Corinth separate from those who are not identified with Christ at all, despite their outward professions. Their words aside, they remain idolaters because they deny the Son with their worship of health and wealth, and unbelievers because they deny the life-transforming power of the Spirit, substituting instead a desire for spiritual ecstasy and miracles. So we see that Paul is warning against these believers, against allying themselves with those within the church who are seeking to lead them astray from the purity of the gospel that Paul preached, and those that stood opposed to him in his ministry. And the way Paul does it, he sets up these bookends with scriptural support in between. Look back in the text of chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Jump to 7.1. Here's the other bookend on the other end. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then he uses quotes out of Isaiah, out of Ezekiel, out of 2 Samuel to make his point here on what they should do. It, it's covenant language. Notice that he speaks really of two things, the intimacy. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then there's adoption language. He says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. And then he talks about what we do in light of that as we cleanse ourselves. So Paul speaks of this intimacy 
of adoption. This is God's response to us when we respond to him in faith. Okay, I know we've done a lot of interpretation this morning. Let's step back on this little section. How about an application? What can we draw from here? Well, I think the first thing, and the primary one as we follow on from Paul's teaching here, is that we need to stand against any within the church who would seek to lead us astray from the central teachings of Scripture. That if there were people in our church that would, would want to lead us astray to oppose the orthodox biblical truth that we've got in the Bible, we stand against them. We must. We must stand united over the historic orthodox doctrines of the faith. By the way, I'm not aware of that, so I'm not calling anybody out. Okay? Don't call me. Don't come see me. No. But we have to be vigilant. Because the church today in America has been infiltrated with all kinds of heretical doctrine. And we have to be on the lookout for that. We have to know the word. We have to stand for the word there. Now, there certainly is the question of wisdom in being unequally yoked in other relationships of life, including marriage. You know, we can certainly make an argument that it's more likely is that you will be influenced negatively than that you will ever draw that other person to faith. That just, it just is. So certainly we could see an application there. Uh, now Paul does address the situation of marriage where one is a believer and the other is not over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's outside of our time or scope this morning, but you can go read there. But I think Paul's point of application today is we need to be careful in being allied with those who would shape our identity. That by our involvement in any detailed form, would therefore identify us then with that. That's just one of those things we've got to be aware of. Again, an alliance that goes beyond just a superficial, informal relationship. It's being involved to the extent that you take on their identity. They define you. So we have to choose carefully. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the history of this church. I thank you for those who founded this church upon your word and upon the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, who founded this church with fidelity to truth as you have revealed in your word. Thank you for all of those, Lord, over all of these 35 plus years who have stood for the truth of the gospel. May we continue to stand upon their shoulders, Lord, and declare as Martin Luther did, this is the truth. We stand here and nothing less. Lord, we honor you today because you've revealed yourself who you are, a God of truth. And so, Lord, may we be people of truth. And in that truth, Lord, may we never miss the gracious part, that even when we disagree with others, we do it gracefully and graciously, respectfully. Yet, Lord, we hold to the truth of your word. I thank you so much for this church body. I thank you for what you want to do in and through us in the years ahead. Uh, I thank you for what you're doing even in the week ahead and the way that you might use us to touch the lives of others in a way for Christ. And it's in his name that I pray all these things. Amen.